is roughly the age that it is, time. We understand that because when the clothes of Stephen were laid at the feet of him, he was a young, or if you will, a budding, or a new, if you will, Pharisee. Pharisees can't take their uh, office until 34 years old. That's important because, and you had to be married, by the way, for the 12th, worth 12. So, uh, roughly in 34 AD, Paul was roughly 34. Now, that should be as simple as math gets. So, when we get to 50 AD, Paul is roughly... 50. Don't make it more complicated than this. Overthinking is under praying, bro. All right. Yes, and by this point now, Paul has lived the missionary life. Now, it's important to recognize it was roughly 34 AD that Paul got saved. That means Paul was roughly how old when he got saved? Yeah, see, I'm making these questions easy. Now, that is important to note because I'd like to think that as I look around the table, every one of you, and me included, we have a beat. If you've given your life, and it looks like I believe that every one of you have, you've given your life to Christ, you're younger than 34. So why not do more than him? <laughs> okay, now, if the Lord tarries. Paul has, in that, in that period of time, Paul has tried this new Jesus thing out on his way in discovering Jesus, but he was trained as a debater, as an arguer, tries it out, and it doesn't work. You can't drag the old guy and the old methods to the new thing. Uh, having said that, now Paul has um, tried to live a life of obscurity, having not read the rest of the book of Acts, because it wasn't written yet. And, and in that, then, Paul is sought for, at the time, of course, still called Saul of Tarshish, which is southeast Turkey. And uh, he is sought for by a Barnabas, a man who's nicknamed that by the fellowship in Jerusalem. His name, in essence, means son of encouragement, or we might say Mr. Encouragement. And he has seen something 200 miles north of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, where the apostles, the sent out ones, are not sending out at all, and they're not going out at all. Now, all of a sudden, uh, there is this new church developing 200 miles north in Antioch, Syria, which is today called. Yeah. And uh, there, something new is happening. The Hellenized Jews are actually becoming part of this. They're expanding their, if you will, their evangelism scope. And lots of people are getting saved. And what uh, Barnabas is sent up there to validate it, and he realizes we need a pastor here, somebody that can teach the word. And he takes a shot. He heads up north to the southeast corner of Turkey, to this area right here. And he winds up finding this guy. And he brings him down, and for a year, the guy is a pastor. He pastors the church with a handful of other people. And God makes really clear there were other people doing the job, so Paul did not leave a work, Saul, did not leave a work in peril to do the next thing that God called him to. And God separates him uh, by the Holy Spirit communicating. They've been fasting and praying. and says, I have a new work for him, and it's time for him to get going. So he takes Barnabas and off he goes. And from that time on, the whole book of Acts, from that point forward, roughly chapter 13, other than a couple debates over whether what he's doing is right, which always winds up being that he is, we'll get there even next time in the book of Galatians, that he has been, uh, basically the whole thing's on cam. It's basically like we have GoPros now. I mean, we could have been sitting down and everything was stationary, but from this point on, everything's GoPro. Now we're roughly 50-51 AD. Paul is roughly how old? Yeah, man, you guys are on it. And he's arrived in Athens. He's had a rough go through Macedonia. He's been arrested and beaten in Philippi. He's had his house raided. That was, he was staying at a house of Jason, actually, there in Thessalonica or Thessaloniki. And then he had to flee Berea. So his was a really rough time. And he, and he takes that trip south into Athens very beat up. He's very beat up. He's very ill. 
and he makes his way into Athens, and he winds up in the company of the greatest philosophical minds of the day and tries to play the philosophy game with them. Now, it is important to recognize we have this rule, and it's a classic rule of hermeneutics of Bible study, and that is you don't draw doctrine from a historical event. You can say, well, it, could have been, it was done this way, but it can't be like this is the way to be doing it unless Jesus tells us or unless someone makes it clear. We say it's demonstrated with Jesus, reinforced in the book of Acts, and then clarified and defined in the epistles. But otherwise, we're spitting on the ground and making mud to heal someone's eyes because that's what but Jesus also laid hands and he also spoke. And, I mean, there's, it's amazing how people will say, well, this is one way that it happened. This is the way we should do it. And they did that. And one of those places that's the most copied is the one, the one place Paul said he would never do again, oddly enough. So when Paul went to Athens, he knew that sharing Jesus boldly was going to get him in a lot of trouble. And so he goes there and he tones it down. During the message recorded, by the way, in Athens, Paul does not mention the name of Jesus nor his resurrection. By the way, I should say this. He doesn't doesn't mention the resurrection. He doesn't mention his name, nor does he mention his crucifixion. And there is a very small group of people that respond, but you never see a church in Athens. There's no epistle to the church in in Athens. There's nothing that really happens. It's a very tepid response, but that's because Paul offered a very tepid offering. And it's amazing. There are some people that are like, well, we need to do it that way. Because Paul did it that way. And yet what Paul said when he arrives in Corinth, which is the next place, he says, you know that when I came, I resolved not to proclaim or to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. The two things he omitted from the message that we have recorded. He's like, all that fancy talk and that philosophy and the quoting of all of those poets. Paul says, actually, I didn't do that when I showed up with you guys because I didn't want your faith to be in the philosophy and wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because, let's face it, the moment you move to that direction, people are going to go, well, some people can do it and some people can't. Let's leave that for the experts. But evangelism is supposed to be for the experts, and that's anyone who's saved. We're supposed to be the experts because we're the ones who are saved. We know what God does. We know Jesus saves because he saved us. Now, we're on Paul's second trip when this happens. It lasts longer than five years. He travels over 2,800 miles. And when he's there in Corinth, he meets a couple. Aquila and Priscilla, mentioned six times in Scripture. Oddly enough, three times with his name first, three times with her name first. And, and while he is there, he has fled Berea. And I remind you, that's in Macedonia. And these guys have to catch up with him. And he had left Timothy and Silas there. So Timothy and Silas show up. They kind of finished the job because nobody was going after them. They were gunning for Paul. And now he's in Corinth, and it's the one place Jesus shows up and makes a house call. Of all the places where Paul's been beat up, stoned, left for dead, flogged, and so forth, yet this is the one place we have recorded. Jesus shows up and says, don't be afraid. But Corinth, please recognize, Corinth had a, was famous, or I dare say it's infamous. It was known as being the place of abject and unbridled sin and licentiousness. As a matter of fact, it would be said, not, most men are not men enough, man enough for Corinth. Homer would call a Corinthian girl, which was synonymous with a prostitute, to give you an idea. So I can imagine Jesus would be approaching him with the idea of not just don't be afraid of who you're going to get beat up by, but don't be afraid. I'm here. And I've got people in this city you got, you're taken care of. And he stays there a year and a half. And a church is planted. When Paul leaves this church, now, by the way, please understand, this is the second longest he will be at any church. This is longer than the time he pastored that first church. 
And now when he leaves after a year and a half, we read about another guy. In chapter 19, that is now heading over to Corinth. His name is Apollos. This is what we read about him. He is eloquent and mighty in scriptures, but he knew only the baptism of John. Here's my dangerous question to you. Was Apollos saved? No. Why not? Because he didn't believe in he didn't believe in the resurrection. Yeah, well it's because he only knew the baptism of John. Yeah. And the baptism of John is you're doing all this wrong stuff, repent. Stop doing it. There's no forgiveness. There's no payment for that guilt. There's no resurrection in the new life. You're right. Mm. The reason I say that is, he's preaching this message, this almost message. Mm. But let's face it, if you're almost pregnant, you're not pregnant. And he runs into Aquila and Priscilla. I might have dare say Priscilla and Aquila. And they pull him aside and they teach him the word of God more accurately. He's got a set of disciples, 12 of them that are there in Ephesus. And he leaves without correcting them. He had this group of guys, and instead of going back and going, you guys, I have more information, you really need to know this is vital, he actually heads over, and he heads over to Corinth. I'd like you to realize something. He is mighty in scriptures. He is eloquent. But he's also a new convert. Don't miss that. But it would be the same as somebody super musically talented with a great voice and does da, 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 and they get saved and you're like, well, you need to leave worship now. Paul would tell Timothy that when you put somebody in front of people, they should not be a recent convert unless they fall into the same judgment as the devil. Think about what the devil did according to Isaiah 14. It became all about him. I'll get the glory. I'll be the one. I'll be like this. I'll sit on the side of the Lord. You realize it all became about him. He's like, why is everyone else getting the credit? Why is God getting the credit? I need the credit. And I get what the deal is. And you take somebody and they're a new convert and you stick them in front of everyone, it's very easy for that to happen to them too. They make it about them. Now, the church now at Corinth, that's a year and a half of Paul's investment, starts to be covered by this guy, Apollos, who's a new convert. But, he is great to listen to. Man, he's eloquent, which means that man can talk. And he's mighty in scriptures, which means he can pull out a lot of verses. But at this point, and he's refuting the Jews publicly, proving to them Jesus is the Christ, but he's still got a lot to learn. Fast forward now, five years. Paul is still on that second trip, and Paul has made his way over to Ephesus. Can you find Ephesus? Right over there. I'm oh, sorry, right over there. I'd be back. This is the one place he'll spend longer than Corinth, and he'll spend three years there. And while he is there, he gets a letter from Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus, who tell him that the church is a mess. And they give him some symptoms. Now, those of you who were here last week, there were three primary symptoms. Do you remember what they were? Divisions. Divisions, yes. What else? Sexual tolerance, yes. Why? Because a guy, what was he doing? I hate to ask. He was with his father's wife. He was with mom or stepmom. What was the other one? Do you remember? Yeah, they were intolerant to each other. And what were they doing? Do you remember? They were suing each other. So these were the three symptoms for which Paul comes to a simple conclusion. The church is still what? Carnal. 
It is the most charismatic church of all the churches that ever have a, a letter written to them, demonstrating more spiritual gifts than any other places, at least according to the letters that we read. And yet, though it's the most charismatic, it is also the most carnal. Not that that has to be the case, but it can be the case because it was here. So Paul has some things to say. But the harshest of all of those things is what he has to say about the guy with mom. Do you remember what he has to say about him? What's that? Don't, not only not, don't eat with him, though it does say that about any brother. Kick him out. Hand him over to Satan. That his body would be burned, but his soul would be spared. Now, which one of you wants to do that? By the way, it can't be a one-man job. It has to be a unified front. Because if it's not a unified front, he'll divide the church. And the church is already given over to being divided. Let's be honest. Was that not about people who were tolerant of him? I thought I remember you saying that the Paul's harshest judgment is on... On the fact that they were tolerant. Yes. yes. So what do they have to do? They have to become intolerant. And how do they have to become intolerant? By performing judgment. Oh, okay. Okay. The, now, the reason I say that is, Paul's purpose in that was not to kick the guy out permanently, but that his soul would be spared. What we're going to read today is that the guy repented and he came back. In other words, it worked. He didn't say never come back. They said, if you're going to live this way, you can't be here. But the moment you change your mind, you can come back. I can tell you that's the story of several parents who've had prodigal sons and daughters. They're like, you can't live that lifestyle in my house. But the moment you're willing to walk away from that, I'll, I'll always love you. But the moment you walk, the moment you change your mind, you are welcome back. And he's going to deal with that. And people go, man, look, if you do that, you're going to lose them. You already lost them. They're already living a lost lifestyle. They just need to realize that there's a point to it. Does that make sense? Now, with that, then the last, then this is this first Corinthians letter, right, that he's going to send back with Stephanus, that's Fortunatus and Caiaches. And then there's a bunch of questions. Remember, that was from chapter 7 now concerning the things you wrote to me. I'm going to say them, if you're brave, just try to say them with me. I won't put you on the spot. Chapter 7 was about marrying. Eight, meat, and then giving, and then idols, and then men and women at the table, and then spiritual gifts, and then love, and then church practices, and then chapter 15, the resurrection, yeah, and then the last chapter, giving and goodbye. And in that last chapter, what Paul said is, hey, I'm really hoping to drop by there, me and on Timothy. We're going to pop by there, uh, you know, and if we're really hoping to, on our way, we're going to go to Macedonia. Remember where Macedonia is? We hope to drop back down there and be helped by you. In other words, we're kind of hoping to get a little support for you guys as we continue this, and then pop back down to Macedonia. So that's what they were expecting. And he says, but I'll do that after Pentecost, because I'm going to stay in Ephesus, which means we know that Paul wrote it from Ephesus. Y'all with me on that? So 1 Corinthians 16, 5-10, he tells them that. The problem is Paul never showed up. And Timothy never showed up, but Titus did. So Paul didn't make it, and Timothy didn't make it. But while that happens, there becomes people who are really discontent with Paul because he's made them be bad guys. Who wants to be the person? It's like, you guys need to collectively tell this guy, this doesn't happen in our church. And there were people, I remind you, that were, in essence, the embers of Apollos, who are comparing Paul to Apollos. And there, and Paul's coming up really short. Because Paul isn't eloquent. 
And I'm, I'm guessing, though it doesn't say that maybe Apollos was a lot better looking, but he was eloquent, and we read that Paul's speech amounted to nothing, and his physical appearance was it was a joke, is the simplest way of putting it. They go, but his letters are waiting. So it's now 57 AD. That means it's roughly seven years after Paul planted this church initially. How old is Paul roughly in 57 AD? 57. He's now on his third trip and he's back in Macedonia. Remember where Macedonia is? As he's made his way into Macedonia, Titus has arrived. Remember how he sent Titus because he and Timothy never showed up? In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Paul talks and he speaks in Macedonia in the present tense. That's important to note. Listen, now concerning ministering to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you. I know your willingness for which I boast of you to the Macedonians. Notice, I boast right now of you to the Macedonians. So guess where Paul is when he's writing 2 Corinthians? He's in Macedonia. It would be weird for him to write the letter to Corinthians. But yeah. So he writes it in the present tense. Titus is going to deliver the letter. And the church did deal with this perverted guy. He relented and he came back and he's going to talk about how to deal with that. And now the people are judging Paul. And here's the basic problem. Remember, his church was already carnal when Paul wrote to him. And so because of that, they tend to lean on the things that are carnal. They judge by outside appearance. They start asking, well, where did you get your ordination letters from? Well, let me ask you. And so they're trying to, well, Paul, you're weak. You're ill. In other words, they're kind of, a, and let's face it, carnal is an easy place to go into kind of a prosperity doctrine. And Paul goes, you want to see strength? Let's talk about the strength of commitment. All of the hard things that happened to me never changed my mind. That is a greater strength than a guy who just basically nothing bad's ever happened to. Mm-hmm. He goes, you want me to defend? And Paul's going to spend a lot of time defending this himself in this letter to a group of people, I remind you, of a church he planted. Mm-hmm. To a place where he gave his life over to these people. Now, here's the reason why it's this is, I'll be honest, probably the most difficult of all the epistles to just simply teach to. Because Paul is so emotional in this letter that he's not linear. It isn't like, though I could say in the simplest sense, maybe chapters 1 and 2, he focuses on the comfort. Chapters 3 through 7 on his calling and defending it. Chapters 8 and 9 on the collection. And then finally 10 through 13 on the calling him back to him. But in that, he's still bouncing around like a jackrabbit because he's so emotional. He'll start talking about them. Then he'll go back into this issue because it really hurts him. I mean, these are people who got saved at his ministry and now they're like, prove to me that you're ordained. We don't even know if you're saved. And Paul's flabbergasted at that. He's angry at the fleshly accusers to the point of defending himself, but he's really hurt by those who are influenced by him that he's been personally ministering to. That would make sense. And he really is literally begging them to return to him. The focus on this thematically is on reconciliation. Reconciling this guy who was in obviously a horrific sinful situation and what that looks like. So there'll be a focus on sorrow, on repentance, on comfort, and ultimately on giving. Because Paul ultimately is sending Titus not only with this letter, but to help get her collection ready, because Paul's hoping to pick that up on the way and head down to Jerusalem, in essence, to get arrested and beat up there. And with that, Paul will spend a lot of time defending his qualifications. Does that make sense? Now, because of that, I've given you one of these, if you have one. And this is just so that when you're listening, and if you can open this up this way, 
You see there's issues of sorrow and repentance and comfort. Paul personally defending himself, his sufferings and qualifications, but ultimately collecting the gift. And the reason I say that is that um, you can uh, just jot things down if you like to, just to kind of know where where this is being dealt with. Because now my hope is for us to do the crazy part now, and that's to read read the book together. It's 13 chapters together. But in all of that... Ready? And we're reading in the round, and you know what that means. All y'all in it. Unless somebody gets really crazy and carry, you know, and just starts carrying on. So you can't just go, I got, I got 13. Here we go, but you do have two. Lord, now bathe us in your word. I pray we could get the pathos of Paul in this, his pain and his, his grief, Lord, over these people, but the hope, too. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'll try to stop only a few times through it, but here we go. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in, who are in all Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercy and God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounded by Christ. Now if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for enduring the same suffering which we also suffer. Or if we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. Make this quick statement here. Clearly Paul is showing them the comfort that he gets in tribulation or in trouble. The word comfort is the word parakaleho. You're probably familiar with parakalesis. It means to be called beside. The same word we read that the Holy Spirit is called the comforter or counselor. There are two words that are used here, the word tribulation or trouble and the word affliction and sufferings. They're, all of these, like comfort, consolation, it's all the same word. The words affliction, suffering, um, tribulation, trouble, they're all just two basic words. One word is the word flipsis. Flipsis means pressure. You know, it's like you open up that bill and you don't have enough money and you feel the pressure. Someone gets weird on you on the phone, you feel that pressure, that's the idea of that. That would be the word, for instance, tribulation. The second word, the word for suffering, is the word pathimas, and it literally means hardship, something you have to get through. And what's, what he, it's interesting, if you add them, there's four of each of those two terms, sleepsis and pathimos. There's, there's actually four of those to, um, of each listed in verses 3 through 7. It's important to note that comfort's listed nine times. So though there's eight times of suffering and tribulation, if you will, there are nine times listed of comfort. And he just wants to make sure that you know that there is more comfort than there will be suffering in that. But he'll move from the comfort of suffering to the clarity of serving in verse 8. Um, for we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, for our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we were despaired even in the blood. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised the dead. Who delivered, delivered us from so great a death, and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us, that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf, for the, gra- for the gift granted to us through many. 
For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly towards you. We are not writing any other things to you than what you read or understand. Now I trust you understand even to the end. As also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, as also you are ours, in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence I was minded to come unto you before that ye might have a second benefit. To pass by way of you to Macedonia, to come again from Macedonia to you and be helped by you on my way to Judea. Therefore, when I was planning this, did I do it lightly? For the things I planned, do I plan according, according, according to the flesh? That with me there should be yes, Yes, and no, no. But if God is faithful, our word to you was. But if God is faithful, our word to you was not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him was yes. For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. Who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our heart as a guarantee. Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul, that to spare you I came no more to promise. Not that we have dominion over your faith, but our fellow workers for your joy, for by faith you stand. But I, de- I determined this myself, that I would not come again to you in heaven, in heaviness. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad, but the one who is made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of the world. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you, with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. For if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, for all of you to some extent, not to be too severe. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. Do you realize what he's talking about right now? Mm-hmm. He's talking about the guys that they had to kick out, right? Mm-hmm. Now listen to these next two verses. Now he's, he's clearly repenting. So he says, So that, on the contrary, now you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up by too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Okay, now, what are the three things we do for a person who's run off into sin, but has repented and has come back? What's the first of these three things? Forgive. Forgive. What's the second? Comfort. Comfort. What's the third? Reaffirm your love. That's what we do. That's our responsibility for a person repentant. And if that happens once, the next person will know that that's what's awaiting them if they ever come back. Mm -hmm. Why do you have to reaffirm your love? By the way, they're all active. In other words, go out and make sure that they know you've forgiven them. You know, because such a person will never want to go back to church anyways. Okay. First time. But to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. 
Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. These faces should get advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and the door was opened to me by the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit, because I did not find Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I, just, I departed from Macedonia. Now thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us diseases the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved, and amongst those who are perishing. The one, um, we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life, leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. We are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Now let me ask you in this. You smell. It doesn't matter who it is, you're going to smell. You smell like one of two things. What do you smell like to the lost? Death. What do you smell like to the saved? Okay, tell me the two major points of the gospel. What did Jesus do? He died and... Rose again. He died for your sins and rose again. This is the problem. The lost people, all they see is the death part. I can't go out and party anymore. I can't go sleep with my girlfriend, blah, 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 blah. In other words, what they're doing is all they see, you smell like death. You remind me of all the things I'm going to have to let go of. But for the saved, you smell like the new life. I love that new life smell, by the way. And here's the problem is that. <laughs> <laughs> that, that took a moment, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, here's the point in it. Because from this point forward, he's going to be bringing this dichotomous situation. The whole, uh, Hear me on this. It's simple. The people that are still carnal at the church in Corinth, they're kind of just smelling death. The idea is, we don't want that. We want somebody that's good looking. We want somebody that's eloquent. We want someone that's all of these things. Paul, you're none of those things. You smell like death to us. Of course he does. Who wants to follow that guy? He gets beat up, but he's full on for Jesus, but he gets beat up everywhere he goes and so forth. But on the other side, those people who are saved are like, dude, look at this guy. He's a hero. And the idea of it is, is let's be honest, when you see somebody that's sold out, it either threatens you or encourages you. More than likely, it does both. Which means there's a little bit of both sides of Corinth in each of us. Now, the good news is, God's more than happy to kill one of those sides. And it's the side we want dead. Does that make sense? So he's going to compare that in a lot of different ways. The outside and the inside, because obviously Apollos really looks better on the outside. Or in regards to the old covenant and the new covenant, the covenant of works versus the covenant of grace, you know, the, the work of the work of the, of the flesh versus the work of the spirit. They're all basically death versus life. And he'll even say that the old covenant is a covenant of death and the new covenant is a covenant of life. This one tells you you're guilty, but this one says there's a new life. Does that make sense? So watch how that plays out, because that's the whole thing is, one way or another you smell. And when you've got a nose my size, that's a big deal. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now let's move it forward. Now I won't have to make much comment. Do we begin again to command ourselves, or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you, or letters of commendation from you? What you are epistles written in our heart, knowing read by all men. Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. 
and such trust had been through Christ to God's word. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stone, was glorious, but the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. See the comparison? Mm-hmm. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away is glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness in our speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil taken away in the reading of the Old Testament which veil is done away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. For we all, with the unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, mirror the glory of, of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Whose minds have got a disease and blindness, who do not believe that the light of the gospel is glory of Christ through the image of God should shine in them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in, in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We get perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body of the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. Psalm 116. Knowing that he who raised us up, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sake, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. For which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, yet 
the inward man renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He calls what he went through light affliction. What do you think he would call what we go through? Alright, verse 18. For we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if our earthly house, for we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made of hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willingly rather to be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciousness. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in their parents and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. For if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have no Christ according to the flesh, yet now we are in that Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors of Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made righteous in him. We then, as workers together with him, also please you, not to receive the grace of God in vain. But he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time, behold, now is the day of salvation. We give no offence in anything, that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonment, in tumult, in labours, in sleeplessness, in fasting, by purity, by knowledge, 
by long suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and bold, and behold we live, as just chastened and not and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing all things. O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you; our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own flesh. Do you see him pleading with them? O Corinthians, what parts of the mind? He's going to say in a moment, open your hearts to us, please. You're not restricted by us. This is the accusation Paul's eliminating them. Now in return to the same, I speak to you as children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? Makes you wonder what was going on in the church. He has to say something. And what accord has Christ with Belial? And what part in the believer with the unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them. And be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your heart, Lord. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you, great is my boldness in your behalf. I am filled with comfort, I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts and inside were fears. Nevertheless, nevertheless God who comforts the downcast comforted us with the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted by his belief. And he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your yieldfulness, so that I rejoice even more. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I did not regret it, though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry of a godly manner, that you may receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Notice there's two kinds of sorrow. Both mm-hmm. people are sorry, but a godly sorrow will ultimately end at life, and a worldly sorrow will ultimately end at death. Fundamental. And this is what godly sorrow will look like, by the way. That leads, When you say, well, how do you know a person's repentant? Oh, I can't. But we can look for certain things. Look at verse 11. Bruno was going to tell us perfectly what we might want to look for. Mm-hmm. So observe this very thing. 
that you that you sorrowed in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Diligence, clearing, indignation, fear, vehement desire, zeal, vindication. Pretty radical thing. Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who has done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but for our testimony in the sight of God, in the sight of God, might have you. Therefore, we have been com- comforted in your comfort, and we rejoice exceedingly more for the judge Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. If in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so, our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. Moreover, brethren, we make known to the grace of God, the soul of the churches of Macedonia. But in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For their power I bear record here, and beyond their power they they were willing to of themselves. Employing us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministry, sorry, of the ministering to the saints. Not only as we had hoped, but they first gave gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. So we urge Titus that, as he had begun, so he would also complete the grace in you as well. But as you are bound in everything, in faith and speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you are bound in disgrace also. I speak not like none, but I am testing the sincerity of the love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were designed to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. As there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is not accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. For I mean not that other men be eased and eased burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, and that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. This is written, He who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no luck. But thanks be to God who put, who put the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. Well, he not only accepted the exhortation, but being, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother who prays in, in the gospel through our all the churches. And not only that, but he was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself and to show your ready mind. Avoiding this, 
that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us. Providing honorable things, not only the sight of Lord, but also the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent, because of the great confidence which we have in you. Whether any do inquire of Titus, he is my partner and fellow helper concerning you, all our brethren. He inquired of they are not are the messengers of, of the churches and the glory of Christ. Therefore show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. It's important to note, quick statement. Notice in verse 23 he says, I'm validating, when these guys come, they have my approval, they have my endorsement. But he says, you should consider them messengers of the churches. Now you do know the word messenger is the word angelos. The reason I say that is, this is a term used seven times in the book of Revelation from chapters 2 and 3 when it says to the angel of the church of the same thing these are. Notice they are messengers and galas, the ecclesias. They are messengers of the churches. For what it's worth. I just find it interesting to consider. <coughs> now concerning the ministering to the, to the saints, it is superfluous. Da 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 da! Superfluous! But superfluous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't need to write to you. Yeah, how you sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should have been in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Notice you said, a year ago, you already said you guys were ready to give. We never showed up yet. But we are planning on coming. So it would be cool if it was all totally ready because we really don't want to do that passing the hat thing and make it all awkward. We'd rather you guys work that out ahead of time. So when we get there, because I'm going to be showing up with some of these guys I've been bragging to you about, or bragging to them about you, and I don't want them to go, okay. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So that each one gave us and passed us in his heart, not grudgingly or necessity, for God loves to share the good And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And as it is written, he has dispersed the good he has given the poor whose righteousness remaineth forever. Psalm 122.9. Notice by the way the requirements for giving as one purposes in his heart, verse 7, not grudgingly and not of necessity. That's the way giving should be. God can speak to your heart. That's where it is. Not grudgingly, if you're giving like, I give because I have to give, God's not blessed by that. And not giving of necessity. If you don't give, we're going to go off the air. God's like, look at you give as God tells you, not as someone forces you. I really like that he puts that in there. Because he put that, by the way, after he says that whole sow sparingly, reap sparingly thing, which people are like, oh, people use that about giving. Yeah, because it is about giving here. But I remind you, the giving he's expecting in this case is the stuff he's bringing back down to the church in Judea, 
This isn't for him to buy a Bentley. This is for him to help people who are starving to death in Judea. Now, he did expect to be helped on his own way, but that seemed like a very different matter than this one. This is one they'd already agreed upon. And he's like, look it, I expect you guys to give generously because I, you guys are apparently in a moment you seem to be in abundance. Well, wouldn't it be cool if you took that abundance and you blessed someone with it? And so I'm going to collect it. And so I just want you to know, but don't give because of some necessity. Don't give because someone's forcing you to. And don't give because you're grudging. But it says the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And the word cheerful in the Greek is the word hilarious. Want to guess what word we get from that? God loves a hilarious giver. But you know, when Bruno gives something that blesses Agnes, I think he does it hilariously. He enjoys himself doing so. You know. It's not like, oh, I have to go out and date with If so, then I'd start to be concerned about their, their relationship. Well, that's what God wants. Okay, we'll go on. But I wanted to get that point across. Now, may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Now, you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us Wow, through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who run for you, because of the healing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift! It's an exclamation point. <laughs> Okay, hey, we're now at our last few chapters. <laughs> now I, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you, that when I am present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. You think of us as if we walk according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling out of strongholds. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And being ready to punish all disobedience when the obedience is fulfilled. Quickly, you notice this is the spiritual battle. Weapons of a warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. This is where the spiritual battle is. The question is, where's the battlefield? What is it you are taking captive in your mind? The thoughts. The spiritual battle is a battle over your thought life. I would say that the battleground your mind. I did a message once called Spiritual Battle, it's all in your mind. People came so angry because then they got to the text, they're like, oh, I kind of got your son. Uh, but the bottom line is, let's face it, just like in the game of chess, Though all the kings must be a pudgy something because he really can't go but his food. But, uh, you know, in the end of it all, it's like, you know, the queen can go all over the place. Um, but once the king gets where he gets taken, the game's over. And once that thought life gets conquered, it's over. All those other things, the strongholds and all those things that it takes to get into there, because God's weapons are obviously, they're, they're foolproof. <coughs> okay. But the context, interestingly enough, I remind you, is about people who are judging according to the flesh versus people who are judging according to true content. The inside versus the outside. For instance, look at where he goes from there. Verse 7. 
Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in themselves that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself. That just as he is Christ, <coughs> even so we are Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. Verse 9. Lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his body and presence is weak and his speech contemptible. (laughs) (laughs) Let such person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. For we then that draft ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. For they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not right. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we stretch not ourselves beyond our measure, as though we reach not unto you. For we are come as far as to you also in preaching the gospel of Christ. Not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labours, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. To preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glorifies, but he who glorifies, let him glory in the Lord. But not he who commends himself is approved for whom the Lord commends. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betroth you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceive thee, by his craftiness, so your mind may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaching another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different prayer which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. But, but though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have been truly made, made manifest among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself, that you might be exalted? because I preach the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in me, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the burden who came to me, my civilian society, and in everything I I kept myself from being burdened to you, and so I was doing myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from disposing in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do. That I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things in which they boast. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into the angel of life. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. I say again, let no man think me a fool, if otherwise yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, 
but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting seeing that many boast according to the flesh I also will boast what you put up with it if one brings you into bondage if one devours you if one takes from you if one exalts himself if one strikes you on the face to our shame I say that weak are too weak for that but in whatever anyone is bold I speak foolishly I am bold also are they Hebrews? so am I are they Israelites? so am I are they the seed of Abraham? so am I are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more, in labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep. Light afflictions? Mm. Okay. In journeyings, often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside other things, <laughs> what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all of the churches. Who is weak and I am not and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn for the institution? If I must boast, I will boast in the things that concern my infirmity infirmity. For God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who is blessed for us are milk and not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king was guarding the city of the Damascians with a garrison desiring to arrest me. But I was let on in a basket through a window in the wall and skipped from his hand. It is doubtless not possible to leave the boat. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell, God is knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my eternity. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, but I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above, that he sees me to be or feel for me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that he might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I have become a fool in my boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for nothing will I behind the most eminent apostles, no I am nothing. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you, with all perseverance, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it 
wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except it be that myself is not a burden to you. Forgive me this wrong. Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I do not seek yours but you. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Oh, dang it. Sorry. <laughs> 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 and I will very gladly spend and be spent for your service. So the more abundantly I love you, the less I am love. Be that as it may, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, in your heart, I caught you. I caught you by punishment. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus and sent our brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? Again, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved. For your edification. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbidings, whisperings, conceit, tumult. Lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. And we're on our final chapter here. Look at you guys have done it. You do recognize this book is basically more than twice as long as every book until Hebrews in this point of view. Notice what he says here. He says, you gladly be spent for your souls, but the more that I love you, the less I'm loved. But I don't want to be a burden to you. But I'm really concerned about this. I'm concerned that when I show up, it's actually going to be worse than I thought it would be. That those, that, that the fleshly side is going to win. And I really don't want that. I don't want to show up at a church where what I see is the flesh all over the place. And I wonder how many. I wonder if he could do that with us. If he showed up, what would he see? Well, last chapter. This will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. I told you before, and foretell you, as if I were present second time, and being absent now, I write to them which heretofore have sinned, and to all other, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God towards you. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do do you know yourselves? Sorry. Do you not know yourselves that Christ Jesus, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Now I pray to God that you do not evil, not that we should care for you, but that you should do what is honourable, so we may be disqualified. We can do nothing against the truth, but for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, and this also we pray, that you may be made complete. Therefore I write these things in absence, lest being present I should use sharpness, according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification, not for destruction. Finally, brethren, farewell.
become complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with an holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Do you see Paul's pleading for them to return to him? Do you see him flabbergasted by the fact that they are asking for some kind of letter of commendation? How that just makes no sense to him? And he wants them to be reconciled to him. And now they're again still focusing on these outward appearance things. You notice how he says, Yeah, you think I'm weak, just wait till you see what I'm like when I show up. I don't think Paul's up planning and coming to this thing. He goes, I don't want to show up in this thing and just start whooping heads. But I will, if that's what it takes. Well, you know what? I pray that that not be the case for us. I mean, clearly there's a lot in this book. And again, we just kind of took a bath. We didn't try to drink all this water. But in that, what's clear in this book is, is that it doesn't end with a warm, fuzzy, wow, it looks like Corinth has really kind of come back and, and done it right. Apparently some are. And they've had to do it in a very difficult way. They've had to do what Paul recognizes is their obedience in dealing with this guy showed the depth of their love. Because <clears throat> nobody wants to do that. But it also showed that the one thing that's strange in is that the guy repented, but some of the church happened. He goes, the guy that actually did the worst in all of this seems to be the guy that's actually seeking to get right with it. Well, there's a lot of the church that's actually saturated in the flesh, and they're not seeking to get right about it at all. And he goes... I'm really rooting for you guys, as you might guess. I really want... Don't you find it interesting? Of all the churches, this is the one he says, I really want to present you before Christ as a chaste virgin. And they really seems like, well, this one doesn't look the most chaste. He goes, but this is what I want to do. And I love the fact that he says, you know, I don't, I don't have to come into this thing with great power and all of that. He goes, I'd rather come in and serve you guys. But part of serving you, maybe I have to come into this thing with a strong arm against those that are really leading you astray in this. And just, man, can I just say this personally in your life? There are going to be those who are going to just basically try to tell you, live in the flesh, but play church. And my challenge to you in that is, don't buy it for a second. Don't buy it into that. Because that's a hook that's going to pull you to shore on a line, and you don't want that. And so, as we go to prayer in this, if there is someone that just comes to your heart that you know is kind of wandering at the moment, they're running the prodigal life, let's just pray for them. Let's just pray that the Lord would lead them back and that we could exercise those things. Do you remember? Can you remember those three things we were supposed to do? If someone were to come? To forgive, comfort, reaffirm your love for them. Nicely done. Very, very cool. And that would be my prayer. And for those who are sorry or grieving around us because of their sin, that we, our hope would be to lead them to a, a godly sorrow versus a worldly sorrow. A godly sorrow, by the way, says we have to do something with this. A worldly sorrow, you get consumed with yourself. You become a black hole. And boy, there's no escape from that. Except Christ. So, let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay?